Good morning, friends and family and everybody in between. My name is Matt Moberg, and this is part two of what I'm going to go ahead and call a little podcast series that we are doing on the podcast stream of what I objectively have come to call the greatest community that was ever created, the table of Minneapolis. Not biased at all in the opinion, but it needed to be said. If we have yet to meet, let me introduce myself now. Again, my name is Matt Moberg, and I am one of the many leaders who try to lead and love our people at the table the best that I know how. And this podcast is actually one of the ways that I'm attempting to do so. The reason why I'm doing this mini-series right now, the reason why you are tuning in, is because as I think about this past year, a year in which we planted this church, a year that has felt turbulent and trying at many different points, As I think about this past year and all that has gone down inside of it, as we have pushed for a more inclusive and affirming community, as we have pushed for a more expansive understanding of God, there really haven't been very many weeks that have gone by where somebody from some place isn't asking me some form of the question, Matt, how did you arrive in that place where you fully affirm the full humanity and the dignity of your LGBTQIA brothers and sisters and cousins without having to leave your Christian convictions behind? And as I stated last episode, and we'll do so again here, because I not only see this as a fair question to send my way, but also as a familiar question that I've sent others' ways, I want to try and share some of what my process has looked like in my own journey towards affirmation in hopes that it'll be helpful to some, clarifying to others, and perhaps even healing to those who have been harmed. Let me start by just naming where we've been thus far. In the first episode, the the conversation, or I suppose a a more accurate description would be the monologue, it, it mainly aired around this idea of incarnational theology and how flesh and blood ought to factor into our moral discernment and form our responses to the biblical texts that we hold, as well as the bodies that we share our lives with. This was a critical piece in my story, in my own expansion and journey, um, allowing the tears of my brother to lead me towards a place where I can dignify um, my own sense of empathy and be the very grounds that lead me back to asking new questions about a text that I've carried my entire life. This was a critical piece in my story, as it is in all of our stories, right? I mean, Rob Bell, he talks about this in um, some beautiful ways, but he often says something along the lines of, whenever we see new things, taste new things, hear new things, meet new people, go to new places, we end up in new spaces that we never envisioned we'd be. Learning how to listen to our lives, learning how to allow our lives to lead us back to our sacred texts where we can ask new questions is one of the most pivotal practices that I've learned over the years how to actually implement in my life. And as somebody who has a high view of scripture, at least I believe I do, I know there's a lot of people out there who do not think I do, but as somebody who does have a high view of scripture, who believes that as problematic as some of the pages in our text can often feel, Um, I don't believe that we have a green light or permission to just bypass them because they make us feel angsty. I I don't think that we can just uh, select all delete the problem texts that we hold in our library of books that we call the Bible. They are there. They're present. And because I love our sacred texts, I knew that if I was going to move forward and actually faithfully listen to my life, I would have to actually go into the text that I thought 
would shut down my empathy, that I thought would shut down and present limitations on Ben instead of the liberation that is in there. And that was a trying thing going into these texts, going into um, the scriptures that I thought I understood. But in doing so, to be honest with you, it felt like for the first time in my life, I actually had somewhat of a taste and understanding of what Paul meant when he talks about how we ought to work out our faith with fear and trembling. Because there were some nights of fear and there were some hours of trembling. It was hard. It was pushing me. There was struggle. I understood why Israel is named the ones who wrestle with God because that's what it felt like. It felt like I was wrestling with spirit and scripture and it was complicated. And yeah, here's why I kept going. I remember not long after Ben came out how all of a sudden in my life it felt like violent pastors on TVs and radios suddenly were everywhere. And they were saying some terrible things. In fact, I remember sitting at my parents' house in the same place where Ben had previously walked out of the closet. And I was watching something on the news and they were showing a clip from North Carolina where a pastor said that he wanted to round up all of the gays and put them on an island and bomb them there. That is the kind of disgusting, violent, demonic rhetoric that all of a sudden felt like it was surfacing all around me. On one night in particular, I was driving around the campus of Bethel University, and I had NPR on my radio. And during whatever the episode was, they were talking about one of these pastors who talk a lot about God, but clearly have yet to be introduced. And I remember having this thought that made me pull into a parking lot. I remember having this question that came across my mind as I'm listening to the NPR that made me slam on the brakes, pull over to the side, and just sit in it for a while. And the question went something like this. Matt, I know that it feels like somebody has turned up the volume on homophobia in churches all around the nation. But could it be that the volume of the hatred has always been high, but your value of the ones being hated has been too low. And the answer that came to me through much kicking and screaming and defiance was yes, I suppose that that could be true. I mean, why would it not be true? In the heteronormativity of America today, we've all been conditioned to one degree or another in the ways of homophobia. And thankfully that's starting to change, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. I mean, hear me now, I wouldn't have ever endorsed or applauded or laughed about something as ugly and vile as some of the things were that I was hearing. But I might have changed the channel. I might have walked away. I might have been bummed out for a moment, but I would have brushed my shoulders off. I knew that that moment would pass. I knew that I could move on unfazed, but I couldn't anymore because he, that pastor, he wasn't just talking about a problem. He wasn't just talking about an issue. He was talking about a person, and that person was my brother, and my brother is somebody that I love. And love will mess you up in that way. Love will lead you into holy places, but it might take you through a cross first. Love might bring you into the fullness of Sunday, but it might put up a fight on Friday first. And so, What happened to me is that all of a sudden I was filled with this sense of protective love. But it wasn't just for my brother. That was central for me. I I felt a need to protect and love my brother. But it was also a protective love over my own sacred story, 
over the scripture. And I was burdened by this sense that our good news, our text that we say is our, our foundation, our formative place where we are being molded in the image of Christ, it can't sound like this. If this text is actually that good news that we espouse it to be, then it cannot turn people into monsters like it was. And so out of that protective love for both my brother and my story, I went back to the text to try and hear again what it was the text had to say. And on the other side of that journey now, I'm really glad that I did because the text didn't talk like I was taught that it didn't. And what I want to do in this episode is show you exactly what I mean. Well, let me put it like this, actually. What I want to do in this episode is I want to show you, I want to go through two of the six verses of the roughly 31,000 verses that exist in the Bible that have been used to um, justify the genocide, explain natural disasters, and motivate monsters to spit venom at a marginalized and misunderstood people. These are six passages that are called the clobber passages because more often than not, that's, that's just what they tend to do. Um, side note, I, you, I won't call them clobber passages again. At least I'm going to try not to. Um, I hate that term. Between you and me, I hate that term. And I hate that term because in my reading of these texts, they, I don't find them to be that clobbering at all. I get how on, on the surface, upon first glance, they might strike you like that, but I don't see them like that anymore, so I'm not going to call them that anymore. The second reason why I hate that term, and this is really a, um, let's just have a me and you moment, and you being the my progressive brothers and sisters and cousins out there. The second reason why I hate that term, the clobber passages, is because it paints a really unfair portrait of people who are trying to be faithful to what they read in those texts and do not end up where we are. By and large, as I said in episode one, though obviously there are always exceptions, most of the people who hold a traditional take on matters of inclusivity or marriage, when I sit across from them at coffee tables or over a glass of whiskey late at night at a bar, very rarely are they reaching for these verses with violence in their mind. I'm not excusing their position's impact. I understand that. I'm merely asking us to see the humanity inside of their intent. If we are trying to pave a new way forward and do so while staying rooted in the narrow road of Jesus, I can assure you that there are many different ways that we will go about this, but hating the haters isn't one of them. It's just not our rhythm that we're going to take with our steps. As a people who are aching and wishing for our time, when our more conservative friends might be able to see us for who we actually are in our full humanity, until they do, let's preemptively choose to respond and seek to hold them up in their full humanity. Let's hold them in, he in healthy lights. It's as in my, my table folk might cringe when I say this because I bring up Van Jones a lot in this specific quote, but Van Jones, after the Trump election, when he says, if this really is about good versus evil, let's make sure that we stay good. And I think that's a beautiful note. Side note over, back on track. One last quick disclaimer before we get into where we're going to go. I'm going to provide for you in this episode where I ended up, but I am not going to exegetically exhaust you along the way. We don't have the time. You don't have the tolerance. We've got places to be, people to see. And so I'm not going to cover every inch of every place that I've been in trying to understand two of the six problematic texts in our Bible. But let's go to the foundational ones. 
Um, I want to start by moving in a linear fashion through this and go with the first of the six passages um, that have been used to make it clear that God is as homophobic as many of us are. This first passage is found in Genesis 19. Now, before we get into that passage, let me first tell you a story. Gather around, children. There were two foreigners. That's so weird. There were two foreigners who once arrived late one night in a town and in a town whose reputation for wickedness and cruelty had preceded them. This isn't the kind of place that you want to roll into when the moon is up and the sun is down, especially if you're a foreigner. It would be like being decked out in your purple pride pulling up on Lambo Drive. You're not going to be welcomed with a holy kiss. It isn't going to go that great. And so the story goes that there are two men from out of town who are pulling into this town during the night hours, and to their own surprise, while they are expecting hostility, they received hospitality. They find somebody who takes them in and who gives them shelter and food and peace for the night, highlighting in his specific home the contrast between the warmth of the host and the cruelty of the city. As they are getting cozy in the host's home, as they are, are um, you know, settling down, the foreigners, you know, they, they decide that they want to tell the homeowner why they're actually there. They're not just passing through. They're not just tourists. They are there on a divine mission to destroy the town because of how destructive the town has been. That's why they're there. But before they light the match and send the city up in flames, due to the warmth, generosity of their hosts, they get a soft spot in their heart and they want to spare their hosts' lives. And so they urge the host and his family to leave with them as soon as possible to flee the city and then once they're gone, do not look behind you. The people, obviously, they say, yeah, let's go. We're out of here. We'll get our bags together and we'll hit the road with you. And when the, es- when the escaping family makes a run for it and they cross the borders of the town, they turn around they watch their city being absolutely destroyed and all of the wicked townsfolk that they grew up with are now going up in smoke. The people who bullied them at recess, gone. The people who practice injustice, they're gone. One by one, houses in the city, they are gone. Pause. What story am I telling you right now? What does it sound like? If you're familiar at all with the Bible... Your answer is Genesis 19. This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Next question, Matt. And I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you because you'd be partially right. It does sound a lot like that story, but this is not that story. This is a story that is told by the Roman poet Ovid in his masterpiece, Metamorphosis. And in this specific masterpiece, Metamorphosis, there is two foreigners. There are. There are two foreigners who were not angels, as they are in the Genesis account. They were instead Zeus and Hermes dressed up like peasants and received poorly by everybody in town except for the hostess with the Moses, Bacchus and Philemon. The reason why I want to start our exploration of Genesis 19 with this story here is because this is a story that was commonly told. In ancient cultures, there were stories like this that generations would pass on to generations after them, always trying to portray the gods in the story as those who would dress up as mortals and walk around to see how people were actually receiving and respecting one another. If there was a city that was called suspect, if there was a city that word had reached the gods that they were not treating the fragile and the foreigners right, but they were leaving them bruised and broken instead, gods would act. They would be on the move. 
those gods would go in or they would send agents in who would get a front row seat to see how bad things actually were. And if it was bad, if the rumors were all true, they would then proceed to shut it all down. This is why the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without ever knowing it. In other words, be led by love, lest the next person that you fight is the one who gave you form. It's a powerful story. Genesis 19 is a powerful story. The Roman poet Orvid, his masterpiece, powerful story. This is a story that should be preserved and perpetuated and told again and again, which is why I find it offensive that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah seems to only have fallen in homophobic hands. Nobody else has time for it. Why is that so? Let's explore this story together and ask whether or not that's actually a fair reality that we are dealing with right now. And to do so, we need to go to Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, which precedes Genesis 19, let me know if you want me to slow down. You have God and two of God's angels being welcomed warmly by Abraham. And God apparently is feeling comfortable and cozy enough in Abraham's camp that God lets Abraham in on what God's plans are for the city known as Sodom and Gomorrah. God tells Abraham that the cries of injustice are countless and their sin is very serious. And so without missing a beat, the writer wants all of us who are readers to understand that whatever it is that's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, it is so crooked, it is so corrupt, it is so far removed from the equity of Eden that the God who would hear the cries later of the oppressed in Egypt and break those slaves free, that God was first going to go on the move here. God is repulsed by the city's rejection of justice and that God is about to move and that God is about to shut it down. Abraham, however, he says, no, don't do that. Abraham says that just because their city has gone wrong, just because their people are a little messed up, just because their family is known for all these things, just because everybody in that village seems to be hopeless, not everybody in that village is beyond the reach of redemption. Do not give up on the entire city. There are babies and children in that city. Abraham says no, and God says okay. Abraham talks God into taking God's finger off of the trigger and negotiates with God an understanding that if there are at least 10 innocent people living in Sodom and Gomorrah, that God will leave the city alone. It'll be left to stand and grow on its own. And so God says yes, and God goes out to look for the 10. Which then brings us into chapter 19, which starts out the same way of chapter 18. God sends two foreigners into this city. And let me just read for you what goes on here. The men go into the town and Lot, Abraham's nephew, runs out to the gate, welcomes them warmly just like Uncle Abraham did. He begs them to come and stay with him so that he can keep them safe, provide them with a meal, give them a place of rest and respite. And after a brief moment of playing hard to get, uh, the angels cave and they say, yeah, let's do that. Let's go home with Lot. We'll pick up where we left off in the morning. Things then, though, get weird real quick. Here's what I'm going to read to you. Genesis 19, 4 through 5 goes like this. Before they had gone to bed, all of the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. 
They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you and I bring them out to us that we can have sex with them. Lot told the men, no, my friends, don't you do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do whatever it is that you like with them. Can I just pause really quick? Does this sound like somebody who has the moral authority, the moral grounds to look at a people and say, don't you do this wicked thing? Somebody who is going to protect his guests, but he's willing to throw his girls to a crowd outside who is trying to gang rape his guests. Don't let that be missed. That's another conversation for another day, but that, that's, that needs to be noted. So Lot says no. Don't do anything to these men. He says, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Lot's response then angered the men who replied, this fellow Lot, he came here as a foreigner and now he wants to play the judge. We will treat you worse than them. The men of Sodom then tried to break down the door, but they didn't understand that the angels were packing heat and the angels struck them all with blindness. They thwarted their attack and they were gone. The angels told Lot to flee the city. Because, and this is verse 13, the outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. And so Lot and family, who can they, they can't argue with that. They just saw the gang rape attempt outside their own door. And so they start booking it with the angels by their side. And God proceeds to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. Now, because of all the men, both young and old, Banging on, this is me talking now, this isn't the text to clarify, I felt like that could get weird if you were thinking that. Okay, now because of all the men, both young and old, banging on the lot's front door and demanding that they give up the two foreign guests so that they can have sex with them, there have been countless numbers of preachers who have weaponized this specific word and used it as an eternal condemnation against same-sex activity. In fact, yesterday at Pride, on my way out, there were Christian protesters present shocking, I know, with signs in their hands warning everybody who was there celebrating their full humanity and dignity as children of God. These protesters were addressing these people with a warning of wrath, and they were addressing them as sodomites. Sodomites from the story Sodom and Gomorrah. Why they did not call them Gomorrahites, I do not know, but they call them sodomites. And here's the irony in this. In calling them sodomites, in using this specific text to do so, they are condemning a movement of liberation while referencing a story that condemns everybody that stands in liberation's way. That's not me just giving you a convenient retelling of Scripture. That's actually a consistent reading of Scripture. From front to back in this library of books that we call the Bible, the reason why most scholars reject the idea that this text has anything to do with same-sex activity on any level whatsoever is because from front to back of the Bible, we see writers referencing Sodom and Gomorrah as a symbolic reminder of what happens when you continue to mistreat those that you have been blessed for the purpose of blessing. We see it, I'm going to give you the list that I have here. We see it in Deuteronomy 29, Isaiah, and Deuteronomy 32, Isaiah 1, Isaiah 3, Isaiah 13, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 49, Jeremiah 50, Lamentations 4, uh, Ezekiel 16, Amos 4, Zephaniah 2, Matthew 10, Luke 10, Romans 9, 2 Peter 2, Jude 6. It even is surfacing in intertestamental works like uh, Sirach 16, Sirach 3, 3 Maccabees 2, Wisdom 19. 
it's all over the place. Constantly, you see references to Sodom and Gomorrah and this particular story being brought to minds of those who are trying to call their people to attention, just like the protesters were doing. Their purposes, however, were very different. Because in all of these symbolic references to Sodom and Gomorrah that we have in Scripture, do you know how many times any of these references bring into the conversation anything to do with same-sex interests or same-sex activity? Zip, zero. Stingy with De Niro, none. In Isaiah 1, 9-23, the prophet talks about Sodom's failure to seek justice, to defend the oppressed, to take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. In Jeremiah 23, it's about adultery, it's about lying, it's about an unwillingness to repent and tell the truth. In Ezekiel 16, the prophet writes about the people's arrogance and how they have excess food among the wealthy, and yet the poor still starve. Sound familiar? Ezekiel talks about how the prosperous are at ease while the poor are in despair, just like they were in Sodom and Gomorrah. In Amos and Zephaniah, they echo these themes of Ezekiel, saying that Sodom and Gomorrah were guilty of mocking and oppressing the poor, which leads me to ask a different question entirely. Could it be that for those of us who live in the largest empire that has ever existed, the wealthiest and most militarized empire, could it be that the reason why we want to make this text about the sexuality of a minority group in our country is because then we don't have to deal with our failed morality as the majority group in our country? Then we don't have to deal with the kids that we are putting in cages at the border. Then we don't have to deal with the 60 million tons of food that our country throws away every year while 795 million people in our world go to bed hungry. Then we don't have to deal with another black body in our city being killed by another white cop. We just, we don't have to deal with it. Because as long as we can make this text fuel for screaming at those people over there, then we don't have to hear how this text is screaming at us. If this text has any word whatsoever to offer on sexual relations, then it would be this. This is a text that clearly, uh, without any ambiguity, condemns gang rape, which is something that I, I hope that we can all get behind on saying that that is a bad thing. We're, we all should be very against gang rape. I'm telling you the fullness of this story, or at least a good glimpse into it, is because I want to offer up this word specifically for my progressive brothers and sisters and cousins. Please try to reclaim your roots in this story. This is a story that warns against cities, against people groups that try to suffocate the liberating spirit of God, the thirst and drive for justice. This is a story that is advocating for equitable uh, cultures advocating for um, reception of foreigners with dignity and respect. And so reclaim your roots in this story. When you have crazy Uncle Frank coming at you with a text like this and yelling at you for being in a parade like Pride on Sunday, don't dismiss him nor this text for being archaic and primitive and outside of your scope of concern. Please don't do that. Let the text talk. But let the text talk on its own terms, not Uncle Frank's. This text is a powerful text that has so much to say, but it just has nothing to say about the morality of loving, covenantal, same-sex relationships. Can I move on? Thank you. I I can feel your collective heads nodding. Let's talk next about Leviticus. 
let's talk about Leviticus. But first, let's talk about what Leviticus actually is. After more than 400 years as brick-making slaves in Egypt, God, through Moses and Aaron and the often ignored Miriam, liberated the Hebrew people. God freed them to become their own people, to become their own nation. They became Israel. And now at this particular time in history when Leviticus is being put on the people, they are found wandering in the wilderness in search of the promised land. And as they wander, as they try to move forward from slavery into freedom, into a home, they have this hovering existential question question, question, question that hangs over their heads. And it goes something like this. If we are not slave people if we are not owned by others, if our worth is no longer defined and measured by how many bricks we produce, then who are we? What they would soon learn is that they were becoming a people group through whom God would reveal to the world more and more of what God is actually like. What Leviticus is then is a collection of commandments and laws compiled for the priestly tribe, the Levites, who were responsible for the religious aspects of the community. The book can really, I don't know if this is helpful, I'm going to put it out there anyways, the book could be broken down into three main sections that will help you steer your way through this complex ancient document. There is the sacrificial cult, which makes up the bulk of chapters 1 through 10. There are Um, matters of ritual pollution and purification. Those are chapters 11 through 17. And then you have the holiness code, chapters 18 through 27. And in that third section, the holiness code is where we find the text that has been deemed to be God's stance once and for all against same-sex activity. And the text reads like this, though I don't even know for many of you if you need me to read it because most of us are familiar with this one now. Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, for it is an abomination. Which begs the question, what is an abomination? It's important that we define this question. It's important that we define what an abomination is because others already will and will continue to do so in our absence of doing a proper definition. The slogan homosexuality is an abomination has been fired out of bullhorns on every city corner for decades now. It pops up in the midst of Facebook fights. It's never a helpful thing, and yet it's always present. And I say it's never helpful. I'm calling it a problem because abomination is a word that evokes something that um, is subhuman, vile, gross, worthy of being pushed away. It takes somebody's full humanity And it makes them sound like a monster. Now, I don't think that that's the intent of the man with the bullhorn on the corner. And yes, it almost always is a man. Nor do I think that that's the intent of the keyboard activist on Facebook. And yet, inherent in the word abomination is this dehumanizing reality. Richard Beck, he talks a lot about this in his book, Unclean, which is a powerful book on purity, among other things. Highly recommend it. But in that book, he talks about um, a term that is called infrahumanization, which is the phenomenon of seeing people as less than human. Infrahumanization happens whenever a group of people, typically those who are in power or those who are benefiting from the present arrangement of society, whenever those people come to believe that another group of people do not possess in and of themselves the vital qualities or the characteristics that are needed to be fully human. 
The problem with using language that creates a framework of disgust in our understanding of somebody's life is that it calls their very humanity into question. And if their humanity is allowed to be called into question, inhumane treatment is allowed as an option in the conversation. Because people deserve respect, but monsters do not. Those who disgust us, those who we find repulsive, those who are not like us, us who define what humanity is supposed to be like, we stand silently on the sidelines as those monsters are mistreated without ever having a conflict of conscience because we do not come to see them. We have not been conditioned to see them as fully human. Now, to be clear, and perhaps redundant because I've already said so once, I have met too many good people who disagree with me in this conversation who I can say with full confidence that when they are saying things like homosexuality is an abomination, they wouldn't ever also say that gay people are subhuman or that gay people are monsters. That's not what they're trying to say. And yet what also is true is that systemic discriminatory practices originate in dehumanizing language. We see this with um, white colonizers' treatment of Native Americans, calling them savages. We see this with the treatment of African Americans in slavery. We see this in Nazi Germany when they compared uh, Jewish people to rodents. You see this throughout history, the, the language of dehumanization, the process of infrahumanization that allows people to do what they want to those people who are no longer considered to be people. Now, for some of you, you might be nodding your head in agreement, but you're still thinking somewhere in the back of your mind that, I understand that, but it doesn't change the fact that it says in the Bible the word abomination, and so our hands are kind of tied. Your hands aren't tied. It doesn't say that word. The Bible wasn't written in English. The Hebrew word here in Leviticus, the Hebrew word that we find throughout scriptures that has been translated as abomination, is toevah. Toeva is a word that was put into place to describe the means in which one culture, hear me now, it is to describe the means in which one culture would establish boundaries and practices of distinction and differentiation from other cultures around them. Why was this important for the Israelites? Because again, the Israelites were people who were on the run. The Israelites were people who had been stuck in slavery for 400 plus years and now they were set free to be a people. And that's great. That's lovely. That's beautiful. That's a good news kind of story. But if you're those people who have been stuck in slavery for 400 years and now you've been set out in the great wide open, you have questions about what it actually means to be a people. What kind of people are you going to be? What you need to do is you need to put in place some kind of practices and professions of differentiation because if you do not, by default, you will copy and paste what you have seen done before. This is why you have all these strange laws in Leviticus 18 and beyond that seem like, for the most part, they should go without saying. Laws like don't kill your kid, don't sleep with people in your family, and don't have sex with the family dog among others. The reason why it needs to be stated out loud is because for 400 years it wasn't. What the, Levit- what the Levitical laws were prohibiting explicitly here, the Egyptian culture had practiced. And so for people trying to understand who they were, what they were going to be about, they first chose to define themselves by who they were not. To be holy, which means set apart for God, meant to be set apart from Egypt. 
And so their central task at the start of their story was to establish this when they were on the run. Because if they didn't do it while they were on their run, by the time they arrived to where they were headed, the people that were already in that place, Canaan, were going to look just like the people whom they were running from in Egypt. This is why the first sentence in chapter 18 of Leviticus is, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I'm the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. Abomination, in our language, in our modern vernacular, is about that which is bad. But Toevah in the Hebrew language is about that which makes boundaries. It is not an ethical term. It is not a sin-defining term. It is a term that provided for a people on the run, an identity in which they could be rooted in. It is an option. To, it is an off-ramp from the status quo of cultural practices that have been deemed normative for the past 400 years of their story. Now, for those of you who have read beyond Leviticus into other texts in the Hebrew Bible, then you are aware and you might be concerned at this point because you would say that, uh, well, that word abomination, toeva, it pops up in other places than just Leviticus. And in these other places that it comes to the surface, there certainly seems to be some ethical dimensions tied into it. To which I would say, yeah, you're absolutely right. In all of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, as it's known by some, the term toevah does come to the surface around 117 times total. That is true. But what's also true is that outside of Leviticus, of those 117 times that the word comes to the surface, while it often does repeat that which is written in Leviticus, not one time does it do so in its condemnation of same-sex activity. Never. Not once. Instead of con- condemning same-sex activity, we see abomination with its ethical dimensions tied to things like people who are lying for profit, people who are shedding innocent blood, hearts that devise wicked plans, employers that are using inequitable wages for their employees, kings and governments using their power to do harm instead of provide healing. But not once. Not once does it do so with same-sex acts. You see, when I first started to realize this, there was this profound moment for me that called all of my understanding of the Leviticus laws and these texts in particular into question. And it even got worse. Worse is definitely not the right word. It got weirder, maybe, when I started to read this story in Deuteronomy. And it takes this idea of abominations and makes it explicitly clear that this is not about sin or ethical dimensions. When we size up all that has been deemed as an abomination in Leviticus, and specifically for the context of this Deuteronomy story, thinking about the dietary restrictions, the eating animal fat, or anything that walks on all fours, goodbye cheeseburgers, and steaks, and happiness. When we read the text of scripture with these abominations in mind, and then go to a text like Deuteronomy 14, it gets interesting, because I want you to notice what happens here. In Deuteronomy 14, Moses begins by reminding the people that they are the children of God and thus are supposed to be different and to live separate as God's treasured possession. And then Moses says, so in light of all of this, verse 3, do not eat any abominable thing. Do not eat any toeva thing. And then he proceeds to name that which needs to be kept off the menu, the animals in particular, that which Leviticus first named. 
But here's where it really gets interesting. After that laundry list of all those foods, things come forward. In verse 21, Moses says, Do not eat anything that you find already dead. You may, however, give it to the foreigner residing in any of your towns, and they may eat it. Or you may sell it to any other foreigner. But you are people holy to the Lord your God. Holy meaning separate. You are people who have boundary lines. You have distinctions and and practices of differentiation. You are a people who are holy to the Lord your God. Are you catching what is being said here? Are you catching how this might be a profound paradigm shifting moment for me in my journey? Because essentially what Moses is saying here is he is saying that you cannot eat any of these things because they are an abomination. But... If you have a foreigner coming through your town, give what you can't eat to them so that they may eat it. Or even if you, if your generosity is feeling a little low that day, you could sell it to them too. Did you catch it? What is forbidden for Israel, Israel is to provide for the foreigner. If what is talked about in these Levitical laws, that which is called an abomination, is supposed to represent that which is vile and disgusting and contrary to the will and heart of God. It is not only cruel to feed the foreigner, disgusting, things like that, but it is corrupt and crooked and exploitative to try to sell it to them and make a profit off of it. Does it sound consistent with the image of God, especially the image of God that we have revealed in the person of Christ? Does it sound consistent with that person in Scripture that God is somebody that desires for us to make a profit off of sin, if that's what it is? Does God want us to be complicit in another person's sin? Or even worse, does God want us to contribute it? Because you'll notice in this text in Deuteronomy 14 that God's not saying, Please just don't interfere if they try to get that food. Don't stir up any trouble. God says that you need to give that foreigner residing in any of your town that food. Make sure that they have something to eat. And if you need to, you can sell it to them too. It's a proactive, preemptive love. It's not just the allowance. It's the proactive choice to, of provision. If Toevah was to communicate that which is always evil, that which is always offensive and gross to God then why were the people encouraged to give Toeva items to non-Israelites? The answer, as I'm trying to make clear, is because Toeva was not about morality, it was about identity. It was about violating the cultural boundary markers that preserve the holiness, the set-apartness of this emerging group of freed slaves trying to understand who they were. Now, I know this is getting laborious, this is getting a little long, but I think that this is important So let's just keep pushing a little bit further. If your argument is that you understand that these are cultural boundary markers, but your take is that Christians, that as Christians, we now subscribe to them, that we somehow live inside of them. Then my question is this, when I put up my shirt on Facebook, not that long ago, the shirt that said, love thy neighbor with neighbor in rainbow font. Why were so many people upset about the rainbow and the neighbor, but nobody was upset about the mixed fabrics in the shirt? Why were so many people upset about the rainbow in the word neighbor, but nobody was upset about the tattoos on my arms? Why? Could it be because we have rendered many of these worship instructions, many of the ceremonial practices that are laid out in Leviticus, that we've rendered them to be obsolete? In the same way that even many Jewish people, since the destruction of the last temple, no longer abide by these same rules and rhythms. You see, this is why it's so strange to me in these conversations about this, about inclusivity. Um, 
it's strange to me how so many Christians claim these ceremonial laws in their defense, that they were, um, that they live and die by these, and we can't abandon them now. But these, you don't really, first of all. And then secondly, these laws were written for a specific people in Jerusalem at a specific time in history. There are scholars out there who don't even think that these laws are written for all of the Jewish people, but just for those living in Jerusalem. And yet so many Christians today, they use that language of abomination. They're so quick to pull up Leviticus, and I just don't understand how. It genuinely makes me a little bit sad, not just because I think it's a mistreatment of Scripture, but I think it's a misreading of Scripture. You, you who are Christians who would drop Leviticus in defense of a more traditionalist position, have you read the New Testament? Because again and again in the New Testament, we deal with these issues of how we are to carry the old law in light of the new emergent church. With Gentiles now being included for the first time inside of what was formerly an exclusively Jewish religious movement, the first fights, the most central fights in the church, the divisions in the church, the Twitter trash talking that's happening in the church, it was all around whether or not the Gentiles had to follow the old Jewish laws and the 600 plus rules that were embedded inside of them. But what happened was that in A.D. 50 or 50 A.D., in Acts 15, what we discover, what we all should have discovered, is that this fight had been settled. A conclusion had been reached. The leadership at the Council of Jerusalem decided that the old law would not be inflicted upon the new Gentiles. They even went after its two most central pieces of the law, the dietary codes and the male circumcision. So my question is, if these central pieces were disbanded, were no longer um, needed to be inflicted upon new believers, how is it in many people's understanding of our text that the most important and central laws were deemed to no longer demand obedience from new followers, and yet these more periphery laws, like the prohibitions against same-sex activity that do not surface anywhere else outside of Leviticus in the Old Testament, how is it that they somehow continue to stand and carry such substance for you? In Galatians 6, we see Paul brutally dismissing the most central tenets of his own faith, the male circumcision and the dietary codes. He shrugs them off. They no longer carry much weight when it comes to fidelity to Yahweh. Paul says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means much anymore. He calls the old law a yoke of slavery, and he begs Christians not to be burdened by that which was never for them. He does it again in Colossians 2 when he says that God has forgiven us all of our sins. God has written, the, has canceled the written code with its regulations that, that were against us, that stood opposed to us. God took it all away, nailing it to the cross. He does it again in Romans 10, 4. Paul says that Christ is the end of the law. In Hebrews 8, 13, the writer there writes that the old covenant is now obsolete because the new covenant in Christ has now been established. I'm going to stop here. My hope is that through this episode, though, that you will hear um, an invitation into that established new covenant with Christ. The invitation to freedom and love and not fear and the law. That you will... Um, 
experience holiness instead of heaviness and that you will see that both in the Sodom and Gomorrah story and the Levitical laws, there is a call for justice. There is an invitation to a rooted identity. There is a beautiful word of knowing where you stand and how to stand where you are. And I pray that you would take that seriously because I think we should. In the next episode, I'm going to go through... um, I don't know actually yet how many of the the other texts I'll get through in the next one, but we'll keep making our way through these six texts that are kind of infamous in this conversation. Let me end with this benediction as you all go throughout our works and in your days. Um, This is what we end every gathering at the table with, but I want to end it for you now in this place. Because I know that whenever we have this conversation, no matter where you fall or what position you hold, it can create anxiety and for some even shame, and um, that's not of God. And um, so I, wanna, I want you to hear something that is of God. Friends, no matter who you are or what you have done, who you love or what you have lost, where you have gone or the places that you have stayed, Know that there will always be a seat for you at our table because you are a beloved child of God and you belong. We'll talk soon.